Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be the old Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back around. Boy, these weeks seem to be going faster and faster by, I have to say. Hello, thanks for joining us. Here's Rick Wagner here on KNZZ KGLN. We are 1192.7, 980, and 101.3, depending on where you're at. And, of course, we're also on the old uh, internets and uh, podcasting as well. And you can get our podcast by going to a lot of different places. I don't want to belabor you with that. And you can reach me at rickwagnermail.com. It's, it's, it's just, just that simple. Anyway, folks, we're back. You know, I after this week uh, that we saw, you know, we've really seen the uh, justice system really fine-tune itself towards uh, being fair to people. Uh, I, I don't think I can really convey the level of sarcasm I feel like that on the uh, on the radio. But so to start off with, I thought I would play a clip from one of my favorite movies that addresses things like this, A Man for All Seasons, starring Paul Muni. It was taken from the stage play. A Man for All Seasons is about Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More was a real-life person, strangely enough, who uh, did not agree with Henry VIII's dissolving of his marriage. He felt as though that it was not legal the way that he had dissolved the marriage and that uh, he wouldn't agree with it. On the other hand, he wouldn't speak out against it. But the king felt as though everybody not only had to not get in the way, but they had to endorse it. He just wouldn't do it. Uh, He was the chancellor of England for some period of time and a very well-respected person. But Henry got himself backed into a corner by insisting everybody say that it was illegal and just fine to do, no problem at all. And by doing that, he felt like he couldn't go back on it. And there's no way he could get Sir Thomas More to change his mind. And the king felt like, well, I've already spoken and I can't change my mind. It makes me look weak and this and that. So after a whole lot of tumult about it, they ended up uh, removing uh, Sir Thomas's more head from his shoulders. And it was a very controversial and sad thing, really. Uh, so from the play about this, there's a cut here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play where someone's been talking to uh, Sir Thomas More. He's sitting at a dining table with his family and this person says some kind of outrageous things at the time and then storms out. And uh, his wife stands up and says this. Arrest him. For what? He's dangerous. For libel. He's a spy. Father, that man's bad. There's no law against that. There is God's law. Then God can arrest him. While you talk, he's gone. And go he should if he were the devil himself until he broke the law. So, now you give the devil benefit of law. Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down, and you're just a man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Well, as we know, uh, the Democrats don't feel like that, uh, no matter how bad they think that Trump is, that he can't have the benefit of 
really the same law. You know, the, the same law is just not, can't be applied to him, apparently. And it's been terrible. It's been a terrible month, really, uh, on the law front. I also wanted to point out that Mike Lindell, who you know from the MyPillow commercials and so forth, uh, was ordered uh, this week to pay $5 million to uh, one of the software developers used in some of the voting machines who had sued him saying that he had there were problems with the voting and that Lindell had said he could prove it and it didn't turn out that it felt like he could and, you know, this this and that. And so that, in fact, uh, that happened. Yeah. Five million dollars, just like that. And he still has a huge lawsuit pending against him from the Dominion voting machines people. Yeah. I think like a billion dollars is what they're asking for. And, you know, you almost can't suggest that these things are too ridiculous to happen because they're happening all the time. And I I sometimes feel as though uh, there's a surreal aspect to it that makes it hard for us to believe that it's really happening. There's an absurdity to it that I think a right-thinking person has a problem with. It's, it's a struggle to say this is what's happening. Now, we often think that bad things like this can happen in other countries. But it's so ingrained in us that that really shouldn't be happening here that I think we almost sort of reject it. You know, it's a little bit like that hysterical blindness thing where, you know, someone has been confronted with something they just cannot process, so they just, you know, they go black, they can't see it. I think that's kind of what happens to us sometimes. I mean, things have become such a level of outrage uh, or ridiculousness or depending on what it is that we get sort of just like, that didn't happen. (laughs) You know it did, but, I mean, part of your brain just does not want to... uh, does not want to acknowledge that. So poor Mike Lindell, I, I do feel sorry for him. He seems like a really good guy, and uh, he's just, they're going to take him down. I mean, uh, they got him out of the stores. You may have noticed. I mean, you probably know this anyway, but, you know, most of the major retailers, when he was, you know, disputing the 2020 elections, started not carrying his product. Like, that has anything to do with it. You know, I mean, does that really have anything to do with it? I mean, I'm not a big fan of boycotts. I mean, if it's a product that uh, people want and that meets your needs, then you should be able to buy it. And that if someone is doing something outrageous, there are other ways usually to get around it. But I know what the answer is out there. Yeah, but you're putting money in pockets of people who, you know, don't like you. So I sort of feel myself slightly turning on, <laughs> on the no boycott thing. Uh, not exactly to boycott, but just to try and some, how do you send a message to these groups? How do you send a message to people? Uh, particularly, like, oh, let's just pick one at random, say Disney, you know, who can't seem to make a movie that people like anymore. But they don't seem to care. It's a bizarre situation. I mean, they've been taking a pummeling at the box office. I mean, if you look at some of the latest stuff that came out today, uh, rather this, well, just this last year, I mean, the Marvels, which uh, was just terrible. I mean, it was incoherent. Uh, it was full of uh, virtue signaling. And it was not fun in any possible way. Now they just came out with Madam Web. Same problem. A confused mess of, I don't know what it's supposed to be. And it, 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 what they've done is... They're so eager to write politically correct 
stuff into the script that nobody thinks about what the story might be or if the characters, as they're portrayed, would have a place in the story even if they come up with one. I mean, these are kind of simple ideas that used to be, I don't know, that you would think were pretty clear. They seem very difficult to ascertain now. You wonder, how long can you go on with this? How long can you make movies that you're losing money on? And they're losing a lot of money on some of these things. It's like the Star Wars franchise. I mean, I have a couple of friends, uh, one in particular, that's really a fan of Star Wars. And he's just... He just accepted the fact that all of the Star Wars stuff are terrible. And uh, it's kind of depressing to see something that uh, you used to really like just getting downgraded over and over again. It's sort of like they remade the Dirty Harry movies and made them in a way that you can imagine they'd make them today. <laughs> can you imagine that? You know, Magnum Force, Dirty Harry, uh, as uh, made by today's actors. I can't even, or rather producers and directors, I can't even go into what I think would probably that would be like. But if you just want to have a kind of a fun and scary thought experiment, think about what that might look like today, uh, as opposed to something from the 70s, and if you would probably go see it. I doubt that would be the case. So I don't know how well these boycotts and stuff do, because I don't know what the message is. I think eventually they get it. I mean, at some point, shareholders in these publicly traded Corporations have got to get tired of uh, seeing their value of their portfolios go down. It, it's interesting to see how long they're going to fight. They're stubborn out there, folks. Very stubborn. So you have to be stubborn, too. Ah, everybody, thanks a lot for sticking around again. Here we are back. Ah, I was just trying to go through all the news stories that we have here that we pulled up to talk about a little bit here. Most of them are so depressing, I just don't feel like it's a good idea to talk about them. We have enough every day to get depressed about. We don't have to go back in time. Uh, there are some ones that probably are worth mentioning. One that I put up on the website that there's a school in Massachusetts that wants a National Guard to be brought in to crack down on students running amok. They're cutting class, having sex, and doing drugs, apparently right in the school there. I postulated that the answer to that was what we always do when schools go crazy. We give a large raise to the administration. That may not may not fix that here. But the idea of the National Guard... Think about, think about that. Your school in an area is bad enough to where they want to bring in the military. <laughs> not even, not even the police. I mean, we're, they're, they're past that. And I, I read a little bit about this and we're all pretty familiar and it really isn't a laughing matter with the kind of things that are going on in some of these schools, particularly the larger cities. I mean, you're, you're not safe in them. The students aren't safe in them. The teachers aren't safe in them and the people that live around them aren't safe in them. Uh, how did that happen? How how did that go, you know, away? How did how did the civility go away? Remember, civility is this idea that, you know, that there are certain rules about how you interact with people. Now we've been dealing with people that believe that the the best way to be is an iconoclast, you know, knocking things down and oh, I'm pushing the envelope and this and that. That's easy, really, doing things that are generally forbidden particularly if they're done with the support of a large segment of the population that would like to see everything change or just fall apart. So it's not exactly a, a brave move. It's always fascinating to me when people do something like, uh, you know, say something attacking conservatives or President Trump or some one of the cultures, you know, the, there's only a couple of them that are that you can attack now. And, well, they're very brave to do it. But they're never very brave to do it. I mean, if you think about it, it's the safest thing to do. 
attacking a lot of these institutions and people out there, especially on the on the right, that's the safest thing that, that can be done. I mean, no one's going to do anything to you. The other day, someone was talking to me about this thing down in Georgia with Fonny. That's how she likes to pronounce it, Fonny Willis, the prosecutor down there. And they were saying, geez, I mean, I saw her questions and answers, and it was terrible. She's just got to be finished. I was like, no, she's not. <laughs> finished? She's going to be a celebrity down there. And she'll probably run for Senate. She'll be lionized. I, I read some of the comments from the more left-leaning places, which is probably 80% of everything that you read now. And it was it was all the same. It was like, well, her personal life shouldn't come into this. And there's a lot of just obfuscation there about what's really going on. What's really going on is is this idea, is there a conflict here between someone that was involved in a, in a romantic relationship with someone, hires them to do a job they're clearly not qualified to do, one of the biggest cases in the history of the United States, pays them more, substantially more, than than people that are working on the case that do know what they're doing, and then shares in the largesse of that salary, which is, by the way, generated by taxpayers. And that money's transferred there. Some of it may have been federal money. Herself. And that that's the appearance of impropriety. That that's makes the whole thing sort of tainted. Do I think that she's probably going to get taken off the case? I don't know. I think it's a coin flip. I mean, if you ask somebody to watch it and they didn't know what's going on in the country, they'd say, well, yeah, I mean, there's just there's too many crazy things going on here. I mean, that, you know, it taints the whole case. Today, who knows? Like I said, I think it's a coin flip. But what we do see when we look at cases like this is that there is a, a huge bridge that's fallen down that used to, we used to be able to cross between political points of view. We used to be able to have some places of commonality between people on the left and the right that we could agree on. And those were sort of like the bridges. I always hate saying that because that's always what the left, we're building bridges. Uh, you know, when they're really firing, firing howitzers, <laughs> they say they're building bridges, but we, we did. And there, there's, there's like, there's almost no points now that we can meet someone from the left, to the far left, uh, and in a point of agreement. Everything has a political component to it, and it's completely ruined our, our ability to communicate. So because of that, things just run rampant, because if I say that the school needs to do A, B, and C to get things under control and not, like, call in the National Guard, I'm not exactly sure how that settles anything. Then because I'm conservative, I'm wrong and it, they won't do it. It doesn't matter if it sounds like it would work. I'm not suggesting that I know all that much, but I'm just saying that even if somebody gives you the best idea from the right, they're not going to do it. They're going, because it's so entrenched now, we don't we no longer have any crossing points between the political ideologies. I, I don't think that uh, you can have a nation, as it were, much less a civilization, where people are so unable to communicate within it. And that's what it is, isn't it? Isn't it just communication? I mean, people will get on. Uh, you'll see them debating on television or listening to them somewhere else, and they are speaking English. I mean, it's not like they're not understandable, but there's no understanding. They are 
speaking and no one is listening on the other side. And because of that, there can be no, no joining together over on, on, on any th- fact. Because what we've arrived at here, and this is something a friend of mine likes to say quite a bit, is that, and this is a quote I think it might be from, I don't know who it might be from, George Will maybe, I don't know, that, you know, the problem is that we think they're wrong and they think we're evil. And so when you start pasting these, these epithets on other people, then you destroy the validity of their opinions. It's, that's what's the problem with the ad hominem attacks, you know, where, you know, somebody says, I think you should do this a different way. And you think, well, I think you're an idiot. And I think that, you know, you dress funny. Really doesn't have anything to do with what they're talking about, but you're, you're demeaning it so that their opinion sounds like it's coming from an unreliable source. This is what's happening with the founding fathers. Every week, it seems like I see another story someplace about wanting to take down a monument, wanting to change some names, wanting to do this and that. And some of it are, are just absurd. I posted a story this week about, uh, what is it? The, uh, University of, um, Wisconsin at Madison, which is a really left wing place. And they keep voting to remove Lincoln's statue that's on the campus. It's been there for, I don't know, maybe 110, 120 years. And because it's a remnant of white supremacy. I can't even figure out how you get to that conclusion, talking about Lincoln. I mean, because he was the president? I mean, uh, was a supreme allied commander? Would that, would, was that, that would talk about maybe Eisenhower? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a label. And the scary thing about it is that the people that are purporting to do this, many of them don't know anything about the topic. And that should trouble all of us. They don't know enough of their own history to even be effective critics. I mean, it'd be fine if you wanted to criticize Lincoln, if you knew something about what he did, if you knew something about the time, if you could, if you could place things in context. Most of these people have no clue. I mean, when you're dealing with people that think that the Civil War might have been fought, you know, in 1918 or something, uh, it's hard to believe that their opinion about uh, someone's character around that time is founded in anything like uh, fact. And so this is this is happening all over the place. I mean, someone reported, uh, well, this is like a year and a half ago, that uh, that uh, Monticello, you know, Thomas Jefferson's home, had been sort of taken over by the tu- this tour industry from, you know, the people that maintain it. And uh, it was just no fun to go to anymore because it was pretty much a lecture on, you know, pretty much how bad he was most of the time uh, because of his uh, history with having owning slaves and just one thing after another. And so what we're seeing is you're seeing our history being erased and being changed by people who don't even know it. By that, I mean they don't even know what the history that they're erasing is. That's That's just crazy if you think about it. I mean, if you're going to get rid of something, let's say you have something around your house, right? Let's say let's say you have something uh, that is, you know, going to throw out. And you go out and you look in the shed maybe, and there's this uh, item back there. You're trying to clean things out and you think, uh, I don't know what that is. I don't know what it's used for. And I don't... Uh, know if I'll ever use it again because I don't know anything about it. So I think I should throw it away. 
Now, sometimes I made decisions like that. <laughs> but the reality of it is, that's a bad decision. Because you end up getting rid of things that you, you don't know anything about. Maybe that's an important item. Maybe it's a, something that goes on to another piece of something in your house. <laughs> but you, and you don't know. And, and this is what happens, uh, this is what happens when we start throwing everything out of our history. Because the people that are doing it don't even know what it is they're throwing out. You know, they know not what they do. It's, uh, it's something to think about. All right, we're back, folks. Thanks a lot for sticking around. You know, I appreciate having you guys on board here. It's not often that, you know, we can share uh, great moments in history. You know, for instance, the collapse of Western civilization. Doesn't happen a lot. And so it's nice to be able to share that with different people, isn't it? Now, <laughs> now may I, I'm sure I sound a little uh, negative, but I feel not exactly negative. Okay, kind of negative. I'm, I'm not exactly sure we're going to uh, be able to bounce back from this. I have a lot of ideas and feelings about the resilience of the American Republic. The problem is that this latest assault we've been seeing over the last three years, well, really since Obama, we had a, a brief respite with uh, Trump, have been really pretty much to remake what we believe to be the re- American Republic. And I would submit that it makes it much less able to rebound from bad leadership. You know, a really stable and successful republic is able to absorb bad leadership for a certain period of time and still come back from it. We've had some bad leaders. Woodrow Wilson, not so hot. We Herbert Hoover, who was actually not that bad, just had a lot of crazy ideas. By the way, Herbert Hoover was a Republican, sure. But he was much more interventionist than Republicans before had been, and actually since, until we probably get into the, uh, oh, probably the 1970s, late 1970s. He was uh, an engineer by trade and had done a lot of projects and been very successful with them. And he believed that you could just get in there and you should do something. That was kind of his philosophy. And part of the problem with that is that it's difficult to do things with government and not have a lot of unintended consequences because it ripples out through the system that's a much bigger system than it ever used to be, and it's a much bigger system than what you're used to if you're doing things in the private sector. And I think that was part of his problem. Now, he didn't bring on the Great Recession, or Depression, rather. He probably could have done some things to ameliorate it, but it was a, it was a worldwide depression that started it that really affected our stock market, and we could talk about this at length, but... You know, he was a much more interventionist and uh, hands-on president than, uh, say, oh, a very underrated one, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, really good president. Silent Cal, they called him. His whole philosophy, and actually there's a good uh, biography of him out there. I think I think actually Amity Schlales wrote it. That makes the point that he guided the United States in a very kind of hands-off yet sort of, uh, you know, philosophical way. And by not getting involved in certain things and limiting his involvement to others, he actually helped the United States grow and take an attitude that was friendly to business, that allowed economic growth, low inflation, all those kinds of things. 
because he wasn't out there shouting all the time, doing things, and interfering in, in some extent, well, that was a pretty good thing. If you, if you want to re- read up a little bit about him, don't go to Wikipedia or something because it'll just repeat the same weirdo kind of things that they like to put in there because, remember, it's edited uh, online by people who are online and are usually on the left. Uh, we talked uh, last week about how poor Mark Stein's book about climate change and the trial that he went through was eliminated from Wikipedia as though that the book never existed. People got in there and edited it. I haven't checked to see if it's managed to come back yet or not. Somebody put it back. But, you know, that's that's why you have to look a little bit deeper. You know, find authors and sites that you can trust and then look into those. But, yeah, if you're ever interested, look into a little deeper at uh, Silent Cal. Good president, time of prosperity, had a way of guiding things without uh, shouting about it. Now, a little bit different time. I mean, the media wasn't there every second of every day. But nevertheless, a pretty good president. Very underrated. Anyway, so what I think we're looking at here is is a number of things that are going on. We're seeing the growth of the administrative state. We're seeing the reaponization. And I always kind of hate that word. But the uh, misuse is better of the justice system and of, frankly, the electoral system. But there is there's some hope here and there. And I wanted to discuss one thing that I thought was could be could be a real important piece and you're not going to hear a bunch about it it it's one of these things lots of times in the law you have something that the case itself is of not general interest you know it involves something that is not everybody doing you know growing wheat for instance or you know shipping or something like that but the principles at work are very important and set huge precedent. Now, right now, the Supreme Court is, uh, what shall I say, considering two cases. One of them is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo and Relentless Incorporated versus Department of Commerce. That That's actually two cases. I'm sorry. I set them together there. It's Bright Enterprises of Ramondo and Relentless Incorporated versus Department of Commerce. And what they're about is a doctrine that the Supreme Court came up with several years ago called the Chevron Doctrine. Now, the Chevron Doctrine was the idea that unless there was something within a statute that creates or empowers a federal agency that discusses something that it shouldn't be doing, that the court should defer to what the agency does, that it must be authorized. In other words, the default position is that that they probably can do it so long as if there's not something clearly in the statute that empowers them or the one they're trying to use that prevents them from doing that. It's subject to certain constitutional limitations that you can read into anything. Well, that's been going on for a while, and this has allowed the administrative state to grow hugely, as uh, Trump would say. And it has also allowed the administrative state to frighten every place that it regulates because it's given them so much power for fines and restrictions and so forth. Now, the what's going on in the case doesn't have to do something that we're very familiar with, but what it has to do is called the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act of 1976. And what it does, it allows the federal agency, and they've interpreted it, to require fishing vessels to carry federal monitors to enforce regulations. 
But it, it doesn't explicitly mandate that. Because what they're saying is that not only do you have to carry these federal monitors to make sure you're you know, doing things right uh, the way that the United States has interpreted as you do fishing, but you should pay them. So they want to put federal monitors on both board these ships and really fishing trawlers. And not only you have to put up with them, but you're supposed to pay them. Now, a lot of these, you know, type of companies do not have a big company. There are a lot of somebody that has one or two fishing trawlers and they don't have that kind of spare income to pay a very highly paid for reasons we never can quite figure out, uh, federal employee for their time on board their fishing boat, getting in their way and monitoring them. So they said, look, we don't see how this can possibly be within the power of the agency to not only impose this restriction on us, but to make us pay for its enforcement. So it's it's a good one. It's kind of a a hard case makes bad law. Well, maybe this is a good case could make good law because it really feels like they're overstepping here. And this uh, Loper Bright Enterprises, they're out of New Jersey. They're just a family-owned herring fishing company, and they're also challenging the rule. You know, said the act did not authorize these characters to mandate industry-funded monitoring. Now we've we've talked about this before. The administrative state under the executive branch has taken it upon itself to pretty much become a legislative branch itself within their executive. So many of the regulatory rules, their enforcement, and things that can happen to you if you don't obey them feel so much like statutory laws that it's almost impossible to be able to tell the difference. And what they're supposed to be is they're supposed to be powers that are inherent in the executive agency that more strictly adhere to what they call the enabling statute, the statute that this is what the agency does. It creates a statute. This is its mission. This is what it's supposed to do. And it's supposed to be narrowly cut to that. Well, they've obviously grown hugely. I think I'm starting using that word hugely more over time. And with this Chevron case that was came, come out, I'd have to look at it again. It's several years old. Uh, the court had said, well, you have to show deference. If the statute that enables the action of the agency is silent or if it isn't uh, clearly unconstitutional in some way, then you should show deference to the regulation. Well, now we've seen how crazy that's gotten. And I'm hoping that this crazy regulation will allow the Supreme Court to look at this as it should and say, look, this this has gone way too far. You know, we've got to examine the whole way do we look at empowering executive offices in their mission and what they can do? I mean, just think about it. Not only do you have to take this character out on your fishing boat to make sure you're doing things right, but you have to pay him. Pay him as a federal employee. Man, the, the Chevron defer, de, deference, rather, you know, there's like a two-step process. Courts must follow or should follow when reviewing agency interpretations of statutes. The first step, ask Congress, have they directly addressed the precise question, not generally, but the precise question issue? If not, the court then goes to the second step, which considers whether the agency's interpretation is based on permissible construction of the statute. In other words, if it has some vague reference uh, 
to what the statute's trying to do, and it's not clearly unconstitutional for other reasons. Now, these guys are arguing that the Chevron deference really undermines the separation of powers, right? Grants too much power to the executive branch at the expense of the judicial oversight, and I would add at the expense of allowing the legislative branch to decide what laws really should be and what laws should look like. They think the doctrine should be overruled, that's the Chevron deference thing, or limited, particularly when a statute is silent on a specific issue. Because what's slowly happened is that silence on certain issues, absent clearly impermissible by the Constitution, are automatically assumed to be okay to be delegated to the agency. So if if they can win this in a fairly meaningful way, this will cut back the power of the administrative state significantly. And we've had a little bit of that out of the Supreme Court this term. We've had some disappointment, I have to say, on a couple of things. Oftentimes you don't hear the disappointments because it's more often things they don't do. Like, you know, they they really did a good job on race-based admission standards, knocking a lot of that down. But there is a case out there recently that really sounds like it flies in the face of that of that ruling, and they decided not to take it up. So it's kind of confusing. Was the trouble that they heard outside the courthouse such that they decided not to revisit that? And what do you do when people are just outside of the rulings? Biden, this last week, set up a, a way to forgive all of these student loans, more student loans. And the manner that he's done it is very arguably counter to the Supreme Court's last ruling that told him he couldn't do certain things just to forgive student loans. And he sort of bragged around the fact that the Supreme Court couldn't stop him. Well, that's true. If you don't have any respect for the law and you're not self-limiting, how is this court exactly supposed to stop you? Especially when you're the executive branch. Are uh, the justices supposed to come over there and like wrestle everybody to the ground and uh, try and enforce that? No, they don't have they don't really have a means of enforcing it. The enforcement of judicial rulings, if you think about it, has to come from the executive branch. And if the executive branch just closes its eyes to it, what is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's chaos. And that's just been ignored to some extent in this attempt by Biden to continue to try and buy votes by forgiving parts or all of people's student loans. And that's, that's what he's doing. He's not doing particularly well with that age group. He's not doing particularly well with almost any age group. And so this, he's constantly trying to figure out a way to buy, to buy votes. And this is one that they've hit upon somehow. I would say that a lot of these people that he's aiming this at were probably going to be Biden voters anyway. So I don't think he's going to get the bump out of it that he thinks he's going to. But all of this has to be stopped. We have got to, if we're going to save this republic, and I don't want to sound too, you know, overheated, but if we're going to save it, one of the first things we have to do is limit the power of the executive branch and the administrative agencies under it. Because they've run amok. We all know that. The amount of regulation that gets imposed on individuals, the fines, the costs, the things that could happen to you 
if you fall afoul of some of these agencies. And we're not just talking about the IRS. Like we're talking about the Department of Interior. We're talking about even the you know even anything under them having to do with environment or uh, land use or those kinds of things. They are not sexy. They don't make the news all the time, but they affect you very directly and very fully in terms of your pocketbook and what kind of jobs you can get. Ask the guys that uh, were getting ready to work on the Keystone Pipeline. And if you want to actually do a little interesting dive, you can dive into how much money was lost when Biden stopped the development of the Keystone. There were a lot of companies that were poised to do work. And not only had they hired people to do the work, a number of them had bought equipment and all sorts of things they needed to do, you know, ancillary stuff like that, to do the job. And when it got canceled, they were left holding employees that they didn't need because there was the job wasn't there, as well as extra equipment they bought that they couldn't do anything with. So for a while after that cancellation, actually some of the construction equipment having to do with that, you know, some of the like earth movers and things like that, actually there was a glut for a while because these guys were trying to sell them because they couldn't use them to make any money. And they'd either bought them with a lot of money they didn't have or couldn't afford to lose or, you know, they were still making payments on them. So they're trying to get rid of them. Those kinds of things affect everybody. And these are all things that happen either by executive order or by some sort of agency. And sometimes obscure agencies can, you know, Department of Fisheries or this or that can be doing things that really are damaging uh, economically and as well as just freedom-wise, curtailing liberty at every step of the way. And we don't hear too much about them. The amount of power that these agencies have developed uh, over the last 50 years is astounding. I mean, they're out there doing things that at the time that most of them were developed, it was never intended. The problem is that the statutes are silent on that. In other words, they're saying there's no limitation on them. They're just saying, well, we should be able to do this. And they've interpreted them more and more and more broadly. And the Chevron doctrine came along to say that not only uh, are they broadly interpreted, but unless there's some precise language in there that says they can't do it, and it seems to vaguely fit the mission, I mean quite vaguely, then it we got to defer to them as though it's assumed that they can probably do it. Think about that. I mean, one of the things in the law you always have to be aware of is these ideas that you shift the burden. In this situation, the burden of proving that something should not be done to you is to you. It's not to the agency proving that uh, it has the power to do it. It's you arguing that they don't. That seems kind of backward, especially when you consider the resources available if you want to sue a federal agency. I mean, some of these cases in the Supreme Court, if you look at them, have been going on for a number of years, not just two or three years, but a number of years. Wending their way through the court system, back and forth, up and down, before they get there. And then the Supreme Court, in most cases, in cases they do not have general uh, original jurisdiction, and their original jurisdiction is laid out in the Constitution, and just a few things like uh, conflicts between the separate states, stuff like that. 
they have the choice about whether they even hear it. And they can let stand a ruling from a lower court that either they don't particularly disagree with or they don't still want to get in the middle of it. And we saw a lot of that after the 2020 election. A number of courts, in particular the Supreme Court, made it very apparent they didn't want to get in the middle of this stuff. They just wanted to, you know, put their hands up and say, well, that's a political question. Well, of course it's a political question. I mean, because it depends on your definition of political, doesn't it? I mean, a political question is something that affects the polis, right? That's where we get the term from. And the polis was the city-state. In other words, it was the conglomeration of individuals that made up a city-state, like Athens or whatever, when, when the term was kind of coined. So a political question, of course, anything that affects that is essentially a political question, if it's being done by the government. So I, I think that unless things are clearly outlined in the Constitution that says this is how you deal with them, this is who deals with voting, this is how, it, you know, there's several things in there that do lay out to the states, for instance, things that they're supposed to do. And we do still have a Ninth and Tenth Amendment. I know we don't hear about it very much, but do remember that things that are not specifically empowered to the federal government are supposed to be reverted to the states. That's really, you know, gone away. But when you look at some of these things, you have to always understand that fairly small cases, depending on the interpretation and the issue at hand, can have really big effects. And I'm watching these very carefully because I'm, I'm hopeful. Now, I know hope is the first thing to fall off the edge of the cliff lately, but I think the court has, it certainly has enough smart people on it to make this an important ruling. Unfortunately, it has some dumb people that uh, could make this a very bad ruling. And the difference is just really one or two people. And the main one on there is going to be Roberts, who's decided to make himself famous by being, you know, the, the deciding vote. He's already Chief Justice. I mean, how much more do you want? But he's always in the middle of this stuff. So... My guess is these, these things will come down to another 5-4, one way or another. And it has a lot to do with personal freedom. So never think that even small cases or small intrusions on your liberty don't matter because they do. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Listen, if you'd like to listen to more and you want to maybe perhaps have someone else listen to our podcast, you can do so either by going right to our webpage, politicalviking.com, or the rickwagnershow.com. Well, let me take you there. You can get links right directly to our podcast. Or you can hear our podcast on Podbeam, on iTunes, and Spotify, and a couple others. So you can find us. We appreciate it if you do. And if you've heard the show, you want somebody else to hear it, that's a good way to send it to them. Thanks for listening.